welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called the woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. So a disclaimer is this message is on that very last part of Genesis 2, which is it's on sex. And so it's not going to be anything crazy. Okay, not going to do anything crazy, not going to freak you out or anything. We won't be bringing like a sofa up here and my wife and I will like, you know, share about our intimate details. That's done, you know. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> but we're not doing that thing, so don't worry. But I'm just going to be talking about what the Bible says about sex. Um, the Bible is somewhat explicit, and I'm going to use the word sex like 70 times. So, I mean, I could have changed it to like intimacy or something like that, but it takes longer to say, and I talk fast. And so sex is a very short word, and it's very easy to say rapid fire. So, so if you have children in here and you're not ready to have a conversation with them, let's say they're like, you know, 17 or something, and you're just not ready to have that talk with them, I'm going to pray, and you could sneak away with them. No one would know, okay? So I'll pray long, and you could disappear. But um, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how practical your word is, how earthy it is, how real to our experience it is. We just thank you, Lord, that we would have you being our creator and designer of our very souls and lives and minds and bodies, that, that you would give us your, your very words about how to live and how to flourish. And Lord, we thank you so much for the vision we have been looking at the last few weeks in Genesis 2 of your creation how you've created us, male and female, what you've created us to do and how to interact with one another. And we're just so blessed to know, to be taught. Lord, we need to be taught. And so we pray, Lord, as we open up your word about this, this topic of sex, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would come away with a better understanding of what your whole word teaches on this. We pray, Lord, that it would be to our great benefit. We pray, Lord, for anybody here that this is a, a cause of guilt and shame. We pray, Lord, that your blood would be so covering their conscience, so covering their minds their, of their confessed sin, that they would just be able to be rejoice in the truth being taught. Lord, that they would, they would love the idea of more people knowing your word and, and sparing them from uh, hardships. And so, Lord, we just pray, change us, Lord, as Gabe was talking about, our culture is, is always molding us into its image, and we pray, Lord, as we open your word, that you would mold us into your image. We know this is something only you can do. We don't need to hear the thoughts and, and ideas of a man. We need to hear from your word. We need to hear your truth. And so we pray, Spirit, come, fill us, 
We pray, Lord, that we would leave just with great appreciation for your generous design in this area, Lord, that we wouldn't have any imaginations that you are stingy or confining or just trapping us in a box, Lord, but that you've, you've set out a wide field for us to flourish in and to enjoy, and you've set a path to, to know you better and to enjoy you more. And so we pray we'd be able to do that. We pray as we leave this place, we would know that we had met with you, the living God, and that we had been changed by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's pretty important, guys, really, to talk about sex in a very clear way once in a while in sermons, because our culture is not shy about talking to us about it, and not shy to talking to your kids about it. And so we really hinder ourselves if we're like, okay, but we're not going to talk about it in the gathering of the church, right? So we're going to have this huge thing that's like on all sides surrounding us and, and affecting us, but let's just talk in euphemisms you know, together. Like, that really hinders our ability to, to thrive. And so we're in this series called Generous Design, and we're looking at God's generosity and making us male or female and giving us work and friendship and marriage and sex and parenting. Next week, we'll talk about parenting. This week's about sex. We give away some free books each time. The free book I have for you this morning is called Mama Bear Apologetics. Now, I don't know why there's no Papa Bear Apologetics, but uh, I did read this book, even though I'm not a mama bear, and uh, it was really helpful. So what this book is specifically about, a uh, guide to sexuality, empowering your kids to understand and live out God's design, and it was really helpful just to engage culture. We're going to do that book study in about a week and a half, Carl Truman's book that talks about the sexual revolution and transgenderism and all that. This book is a lot more accessible. This book's a lot more kind of practically oriented. So I've got five copies of these. If you are desiring to do this, if a man, a papa bear were to come up and get it, I would say that's great, you know? So just ignore all the mama bear references. But um, guys, as we look at the scriptures here, we can even see in Genesis 2 here, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. God's word, the Bible, is very pro-sex. And that comes as a surprise to a lot of people. And there's certainly been Christians throughout church history that have given off a very negative vibe about sex in general. The worst of all of them were probably the Shakers. So the Shakers lived in the 1700s. They believed that sex was wrong even in marriage, even for procreation. And so that whole movement was self-limiting <laughs> because they didn't have any children and nobody wanted to join that. So... So they're gone, but they, they made this impact. And there's been other Christian traditions that have taught that sex in marriage is really only appropriate if there's a reasonable chance of conception. And you can just imagine how that would damage marriages, but that's a thing, and, and some Christians hold that view. Some of you in this room might even be tempted to think of sex that way. But the Bible is very pro-sex. You can see that sex is a part of God's good creation. Look at Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. The Bible is very pro-sex because sex was God's idea from the beginning. And I know you guys are like, oh yeah, sure. But let me do a little thought experiment with you. Imagine this sentence, in the beginning, God, blank, okay? In the beginning, God thought of sex, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? You're like, that's kind of surprising. But he did. He designed it. It was his idea. He invented it. That's worth pondering. It's worth pondering that he invented the body parts for it, the hormones for it, the brain chemistry, the actions of it. It wasn't like God, you know, created Adam and Eve, and he went away, and he came back, and he was like, wait, what are you doing? 
You know, like, who said you could do that? Where did you get these ideas? You know, it must be the public schools or something. You know, no, he, he created this. This is part of God's generous design, guys. And I think that, you know, we miss that because we're so assaulted with all the sinful things that have come upon it that we, we miss that. And guys, the Bible is incredibly frank about sex. You know, some of you are like, well, what are you going to say? And I said, I was just going to say stuff the Bible says. And they're like, that's not reassuring. <laughs> things like the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon 7.7 7 says this, your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath is like apples. And so those of you guys who are like Steve Miller band fans will recognize the lyric was stolen from here, Song of Solomon. And I don't want anybody singing the Joker right now. That's not the place. But there's much racier passages I could go into. None of you guys would want me probably to go through Song of Solomon and look at all of the Hebrew images that are there in detail. Okay? I'll just leave that to your own private study. So why did God design sex? God designed sex for procreation. Of course, in chapter 1, it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it. But he clearly has something more in mind, and we can even see that here in Genesis 2. We can see in Genesis 2 that sex in marriage is a sign of covenantal oneness. If you take a look at verse 24, it says that the two shall become one flesh. I think that's speaking of the covenantal union. And then it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Sex in marriage is a sign of covenantal oneness. It's a kind of covenant renewal ceremony. Because in, mar- in the marriage covenant, what you're saying when you got married was, I belong to you permanently, exclusively, and completely. I will never leave you or forsake you. I've seen all your flaws, and there's some that I haven't seen yet. But no matter what I see, I'm not going anywhere. Isn't that what the marriage covenant says? It says, no matter what, I won't leave you or forsake you. I'm not going anywhere. In the marriage covenant, you make yourself vulnerable to your spouse legally, financially, personally, emotionally, socially. You make yourself vulnerable in every single way. And sex in marriage is a sign of that covenant union. It's a physical sign of what you've done with the rest of your life. Okay? It's a physical sign. It's a becoming one physically. It's doing with your body what you've already done with the rest of your life. In other words, it's a covenant sign of love. But it's not only that. It's not only a sign of that covenantal oneness. It actually strengthens that covenantal oneness. Sex powerfully binds two people together. Sex isn't merely a physical act. It binds people. That makes sex a really powerful way to strengthen your marriage, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. It increases a sense of oneness. I mean, God's even designed like the chemicals of your brain to do that, namely like oxytocin and other chemicals that actually cause a binding between two people emotionally, psychologically through the act of sex. And so sex is powerful. You know, it's, it's like nuclear reactor powerful. Yeah. Just like a, a nuclear reactor when it's functioning can like warm and light an entire city or if it breaks can blow up an entire city. That's what sex is like, right? It's powerful. Sex can be used to to strengthen and create strong, stable marriages and thriving families, or it can rip them apart, and we've all seen that. And that's what we see in Genesis 3. So when human beings rejected God in Genesis 3, a kind of um, sexual Chernobyl occurred, okay, where sex, which was kept in the covenant of marriage in a way that's powerful and binding and good for, for marriage, what happened after the fall was that there was a Chernobyl effect, where it was released from the reactor of the marriage covenant. And outside of the covenant marriage, sex has been misused. It's wreaked havoc on humanity. 
I mean, just in Genesis alone, just in like the, the immediate blast zone of the fall, you see uh, adultery, sexual assault, homosexuality, incest, and you see throughout the rest of Scripture, which is, I mean, you just see it's very frank about everything. Read the book of Judges, you know, read throughout Israel's history. What happened when, when sex was taken outside the covenant was it wreaked havoc on humanity. And we see that, and we've all been affected by that in some way, either personally or people that we know. Biblically, guys, just so I define my term, sexual sin includes any sexual gratification outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That makes it pretty simple. I think that's very biblical definition. Any sexual gratification outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. So you say, well, what about a marriage that's same sex? Those aren't marriages, okay? In a biblical definition, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the only kind of marriage that God recognizes. And so that's why our definition is the way it is. One extremely common form in our day is internet pornography. When you think of that Chernobyl effect and the, the release of of sex from the covenant is internet pornography. It is uh, said that the American porn industry makes more money than all the big TV networks and all the football, baseball, and basketball franchises combined. It's an amazingly huge destructive industry. Pornography addicts children, usually at age 10 or 11. When I was doing college ministry, it was not uncommon that you know, there were guys who were 18, 20 years old, and they had a decades-long porn addiction. I think their entire adolescence was formed by it. So pornography addicts children. It fuels same-sex attraction. You know, so many of my friends have dealt with same-sex attraction. Pornography had really fueled that and kind of, you know, encouraged that and deepened that temptation. It reduces the drive to marry. Like, we all see stats about that now. It reduces the drive to marry. It hijacks the brain. There's actually a book about that that's great, you know, how porn hijacks the brain. It promotes impotency. It contributes to divorce. But aside from the the personal effects, it creates a market for sex trafficking and prostitution of other people's sons and daughters. So, I mean, this is something that not only is destructive to you personally and to your family, this is something that's destructive to culture. I mean, this is probably one of the major, you know, human justice issues of our time. And I just want to throw out this to you guys. If you are supporting that evil industry, if that's something that you've you know, not been able to stop, addicted to it, and you try to stop, please let someone here know. If you're a man, there's plenty of men here that would love to help you walk through that, and you might, oh, I already tried that. Please reach out again, because we would love to just walk with you. And, and if that takes years, or that takes months, or whatever that takes, we want to walk with you in freedom. And if you're a woman and you're dealing with that as well, lots of women use pornography. Women also use a lot of times uh, novels and things like that instead of porn. If you're trapped in that, you know, reach out to one of the ladies here. Same thing. Like, we'll walk with you. And if you brought it to us, I mean, I've so often had men, like, confess this to me, and I think they think I'm going to freak out. And, but if a man texts me and says, like, hey, let's have coffee. I have something I need to talk to you about. 90% chance that's what it is. I'm not shocked. And I see it as an evidence of God's grace. And that's what I always say. And those of you guys who know me, and we've talked about this before, know that's the first thing I say. I say, this is an evidence of God's grace, you know, that you would reach out. You wanted to be free from this. This is God already at work. Like, let's keep walking through this, and let's be free. 
So what makes sexual sin so alluring? Well, the big thing with sexual sin is that we, it's a God replacement. When we reject God, we always replace him with something. Something in our heart always takes his place. That's called idolatry. Idolatry is looking to anything except God for your significance, security, meaning, identity, happiness, hope. That's your thing that you treasure. That's an idol. And guys, everybody worships without exception. We were all created to worship. We all have in our hearts like a little throne in our hearts that's meant for God. And when we reject God and we take him out of it, something else will sit on that throne and it will not be you. There will be something that rules your life. There will be something that is your idol. And for many, this is it. It's sex. And our culture is taking it to a whole nother level, it seems. I mean, it's hard to say that because, you know, the Canaanite religions had all kinds of sexual immorality. We can see that in the Old Testament. We can see in the first century, you know, in Corinth and places like that, there were temple prostitutes and all this stuff. So it's always been crazy, right? But our culture is interesting in that if you listen to the public discourse, especially public discourse about LGBTQ issues, something becomes really clear, and that's that our sexual desires and practices have become our identity. They become who you are. It's become like the first thing you say about a person. It's now considered the most important thing about you is what your sexual desires and practices are. And that's, that's unusual. You know, it's unusual that we would make that our primary designator of identity. I mean, ever since the fall, we've all been affected with, with sinful desires in every part of our area, including sex, whether it's heterosexual lust, whether it's same-sex attraction, whatever it is, we all have a certain amount of brokenness and a certain amount of temptations. The Lord's very compassionate about that. The Lord just wants to walk with us through that, wants to redeem all of those, all those desires and free us from those temptations. But it should never be our identity. It's really interesting that it would be our identity. For sex to be the core of someone's identity, for our ability to act on our sexual desires to become what it means to be fully alive. You guys realize that? In our culture, to be able to act on your sexual desires is what it means to be fully alive. I'll prove it to you. You know, you don't have to know anything about the movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, to know it's a comedy. Why? It's because it's unthinkable in our culture that anyone would remain celibate. You know? It's actually a call to celibacy, which for a lot of Christians, there's a call to celibacy. Either before you're married, if you were divorced and and you're not able to remarry, if you're not attracted to the opposite sex, or you just have unwanted singleness. There's all kinds of calls to follow Christ that involve celibacy, but to our culture, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that somebody would lifelong or for long term be celibate. It's as if it's impossible or oppressive or inhumane or humorous in the case of a movie like that, right? If sex is your life, then celibacy is death. And you can just see that if celibacy is like a death sentence, then we have definitely made sex something it wasn't intended to be, right? It's the very definition of life. In about a week, about a week and a half, we're going to do this book study, Carl Truman's book, Strange New World, and we're going to talk about transgenderism. It's on a Tuesday night. And we're just trying to understand culturally how the way we think about sex and the sex revolution and like all these things happen and kind of understand the history of it and culturally what's going on there. But I think you can agree with me that sex is a cultural idol and just about everyone has worshiped at its altar. And sex is, as we saw, a great gift, but it's a terrible idol. Take a look at Psalm 115. You guys remember when we were in Psalm 115 in the Psalm series? 
Psalm 115 is really practical on this because this goes for sex as well. If we make it our idol, listen to what idols can't do. Psalm 115 tells us that idols both are weak and cannot give what they promise and also that they're destructive. Psalm 115 verse 4 says this, their idols are silver and gold, so they look good. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes they do not see, they have ears they do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, they have feet but do not walk, they do not make a sound with their throats, and then listen to the thread at the end. Those who make them become like them, and so do all those who trust in them. Idols both can never promise the thing they, they say they're going to give us. They're weak. They don't have the ability to give the happiness and meaning and hope that they claim to, and they always lead to destruction. And we can see that in our culture. Like, this is not just theory. We can see this play out in our own culture. A culture that's more and more obsessed with sexual sin that is also at the same time, I think you guys can see, becoming more hopeless and unhappy over time. Like, this has not led to human flourishing. In fact, ironically, it's led to a lot less sex. There's a lot of statistics about that, both single and married people having a lot less sex in the last couple of decades. You know, as we pursue that as an idol, it not only doesn't lead to human flourishing, it's destructive in our lives, and we actually lose the gift. And so God's commands in this area, guys, are good. Like One of the reasons I call it Generous Design Series is like God's design in Genesis 2 is not confining, it's generous, it's good. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, the more I considered Christianity, the more that I found that while it establishes a rule or an order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. I love that. That God's commands are not meant to be like this confining little, little pen that you know, takes away your joy. He's not trying to take away your joy. He's trying to allow room for good things to run wild. Because he created this, he knows exactly how it will lead to human flourishing, i.e. put it back in the reactor, right? Or how it will lead to human destruction. And I think we're watching it play out. You can see it in God's word and you can see it playing out in our culture as well. And, and we see good things running wild in Genesis 2.24, right? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. When sex is enjoyed the way God intended, when it's kind of put back in the reactor, what happens is single people are then drawn to be married, those who are called to marriage. Marriages are strengthened and enjoyed, and children don't have to worry that their family is going to be torn apart, Right? And one of the ways we get sex wrong is, is we've turned something that's meant to be a covenant good, it's like a good thing meant for the covenant, we've turned a covenant good into a consumer good. We've taken a consumeristic mindset. People often ask, well, why would God prohibit sex between two people just because they aren't married? What's wrong with sex between two unmarried people who really love each other? It's a good question, right? I mean, like Gabe was talking about, you guys have all been catechized by the culture. You hear that question, you're like, yeah, that does sound weird. Why would he? prohibit that, right? You feel it? Okay, maybe you don't feel it. And you guys like have been immune to culture. You live in your own little islands. But I'll tell you, when I hear the question, what's wrong with two unmarried people having sex if they really love each other? I'm like, yeah, what is wrong with that, right? Because we've all been catechized. But the answer hinges on what is love. And we live in a time, guys, of radical individualism, a time when people want the kind of relationship where their partner demands no change from them, right? Requires no sacrifice of any of their desires or interests or dreams. Does that sound like marriage? Let me read it again. (laughs) A relationship where the other partner 
makes no demands for you to change, requires no sacrifice of any kind of your desires, interests, or dreams. Does that sound like marriage? No, it doesn't sound anything like marriage. It's like the opposite of marriage, right? Yeah. And so what happens is not wanting to, to give up freedom or take on the costs of a marriage covenant, you just take the benefits of the covenant without taking on the cost of the covenant. Guys, sex outside of marriage takes a covenant good and makes it a consumer good. You guys remember what the marriage covenant says. It says, I belong to you permanently, exclusively, and completely. I will never leave you or forsake you. And sex is doing with our bodies what we've already promised to do with our whole lives. Sex outside of marriage basically says, I'm too afraid or I want my freedom too much or I care too little about you to commit to a lifelong covenant with you but I do want you to share yourself with me as if I were willing, right? Sex outside of marriage says, I will take the covenant benefits, but I will leave my options open. Sex outside of marriage says, there might be a better vendor elsewhere, right? It's consumeristic approach to sex. All sexual gratification outside of marriage treats it as a consumer good instead of a covenant good, not as an act of love, but as an act of selfishness. And so when you ask the question, What's wrong with sex between two unmarried people who really love each other? The answer is, they don't. Okay? Not yet. They don't love each other covenantally yet. Right? Maybe they're going to get married. They'll love each other covenantally then. But two unmarried people don't really love each other covenantally. And that's why sex should not be outside of marriage. I mean, I don't doubt you have strong feelings. I don't doubt you have strong affections. But that's desire. Love is different. Love is costly. You know, to make a covenant, as all you married people know, to make a marriage covenant is costly, right? I may have made too much of this last week because I had one guy come up to me, a single guy, and he was like, hey, thanks for making me so much more content with my singleness this morning. <laughs> so I'm like, making the single people more content with their singleness, I'm probably right where I should be. You know what I mean? Shouldn't I? Yeah, I think I'm doing it right. Okay, so a covenant, guys, is costly. Without a covenant, you're just a consumer, Okay? Without a covenant, you're just a consumer. And then, this is cool, into this whole mess we made, so sex kept inside of marriage covenant, nuclear reactor makes the whole family warm and gives it light and energy, right? The fall breaks open, it's released. We make this huge mess with the scripture basically shows us that entire mess we made. And into this huge mess walks Jesus, Right? God the Son becomes a man. In Jesus, we have a man who is more than willing to pay the price to make a covenant with his bride. Amen? We have a man that's more than willing to pay the price to make a covenant with his bride. Jesus has not come to take but to give, to give his whole life for us. In Jesus, we see a man who is tempted in all ways as we are, including sexually. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. In Jesus, we have a man who is celibate all his life, and yet never was there a man more alive or a life more meaningful. And, and through his life, Jesus has earned for us a perfect sexual history, right? He died in our place for our sexual sin. He took the penalty that the law so often prescribed for sexual sin, the death penalty, right? He died on the cross for all of our sins. And this morning, for those of you who will take his amazing gift or have already taken it, Jesus promises to give you his perfect past, it's a beautiful part of the gospel is that when you come to Christ, when you trust in him, your old sinful life, is the record of that is expunged, and in its place is Jesus' perfect past. 
And this is a particularly amazing gift in the area of sexual sin because so often it brings a sense of being dirty or defiled or damaged. And so what happens in the gospel is that Jesus' blood completely removes that old pass and in its place puts Jesus' perfect pass. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Such a beautiful passage. I think it's one of the core ones that you should think of when you think of sexual sin, you think of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. A couple things to notice there. One is that that list includes drunkards, swindlers, and greedy people, right? And then it says this beautiful line, and such were some of you. Isn't that beautiful? But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus lived, died, and was raised to give you a new past. And so for those of you who feel, you know, you're tempted to think of your, your previous life and feel dirty or damaged or defiled, if there were like a way for you to go to the database in heaven about your life and they were to look you up, they would not be able to find any record of your sin. That in Christ, that has been completely expunged. And underneath your name is Jesus' perfect human righteousness credited to you. Only his past is seen under your name. And look again at the text. It's so great. It says, and such were some of you. This is like the most beautiful line, isn't it? And it not only means forgiveness, that he's taken away the penalty of your sin, but it also includes freedom. Such were some of you. It speaks to identity, doesn't it? it? Speaks to who you are. You were that. You're not that anymore if you're in Christ. The gospel gives you not only forgiveness, but a new identity and a new freedom, a freedom to live faithfully. And for single people, that faithfulness looks like celibacy, right? And what the world calls a death sentence isn't a death sentence to you. Because your identity isn't in sex, your identity is in Christ. In Christ now, not only is he your identity, but you live in him and he lives in you. And so the same Christ who endured all those temptations and lived righteously is now living within you. If you abide in him, that he can cause you to live faithfully in your calling as a single person to live celibate. He will live through you. And just like Christ's celibate life, your life will not just be defined by what you don't do right? Like the Spirit's going to make you wonderfully fruitful for the kingdom. Some of the greatest saints that we've had in church history were single and faithfully celibate. You think of Prophet Jeremiah, single person. Apostle Paul, single person. Very likely Mary and Martha were single. Mary Magdalene, very likely single. We know that Lydia was. We know in church history that Augustine was single. David Brainerd, who was a missionary in the 1700s, single. Hannah Moore, who was like this amazing poet, abolitionist, like rock star in the 1700s, single. Corey Tenboom, single. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, also single. John Stott. I mean, all amazing single people who had amazing, meaningful lives by the power of the Spirit. Their lives were not just defined by the fact that they did not have sex. Like, their lives were defined by the power of God in their lives. And for married people, there's two forms of freedom to think about. One of them is, is that you're going to be faithful to your spouse. And that's usually the only thing we think about in this area. But sanctification isn't just about what we don't do, that we don't commit adultery. It's also about committing to growing and serving your spouse sexually. It's part of sanctification. That's just what you don't do. 
It's about fully pursuing your spouse sexually. Proverbs 5 says it this way, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Why should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for a stranger with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely doe and a gracious deer. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always with her love. There's tons of passages like that in the scriptures that show that sex in marriage, guys, is important, super important. And I would just say to you this morning, like, don't neglect it any more than you would neglect any other area of your marriage. It's not a less spiritual part to work on and to pursue. Don't be lazy about it. Don't minimize the importance of it. The scripture tells you how important it is. Don't, don't just give it your leftover time and your leftover energy, right? Married people, don't give it your leftover time and your leftover energy. Statistically, married people in our culture are having less sex over the past couple decades. And I just want to say, like, as Christians, we are opposed to sexless marriages, aren't we? We should have bumper stickers. We could surprise the culture. You know, we put all the other things we're opposed to. We could be like, opposed to sexless marriages. You know, like, here's a passage from, from Proverbs. But growth in this area, guys, is an area that we should grow in married people as we grow in any other of God's commands, right? We of all people should pursue sex and marriage because we know what it means. Amen? I thought I'd get an amen. <laughs> what in the world? That was weird. Amen? Amen. Okay. All right. Just checking. They're not a very charismatic lot. So <laughs> last thing to say is both singleness and marriage have, have challenges, right? I mean, like that single guy was saying to me, like, I'm so much more content in my singleness after hearing it. Guys, we, we all have our own challenges, married or single. And the cool thing is, guys, is that we're not in this alone because marriage and sex point to something greater. Ephesians 5.29, Paul says that marriage, that one flesh union, points to our relationship with Christ. He says this, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes that passage we were just looking at in Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says this surprising thing. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Paul's saying that Genesis 2.24 is really ultimately about Christ and the church. That marriage and sex are meant to remind you that God himself has made a never-ending covenant with you. And so whether you're married or you're single, you have God's promise of this covenant. In the gospel, God says to you, I belong to you permanently and completely. I will never leave you or forsake you. I've seen your flaws, and he has. And no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. You have a relationship with God in which you can be naked and unashamed, where you can be fully known and fully loved. And what's cool is that marriage is actually God's favorite image for the gospel. You see it throughout Scripture. You see that the Bible begins with a wedding, the Bible ends with a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus said that in the world to come there will be no marriage, so there will also be no sex but we won't need it, right? Because we will have something better. We will be enjoying the very presence of God, the thing that even your best marriages only dimly point to. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the, the blessing of being together as your people, of thinking about your son Jesus and how he has come as the ultimate faithful 
husband to his people, how he has loved us from before we were created, before the foundation of the world, and that you sent him into history to be our righteousness. Lord, there's all different people here. There's kids with a certain level of sin that they've gotten themselves into. You have young people, you have older people, all different paths, all different histories. But one thing's in common is that our sin would separate us from you for eternity. And yet you loved us so much, you sent your son Jesus, and he loved us so much as to go to the cross and bear our sin and our shame so that we bear it no more. And we thank you that even now, you are causing Christ's life to be lived through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That even now, you are loving us more than any spouse ever loved their marriage partner. That even now, you are pouring out your affection upon us to help us, to nourish us, to sustain us. And we know that we will make it faithful to the end because you fill us. You give us life. And we look forward to that day when we'll sit around that table at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we'll enjoy all the benefits of your son Jesus' sufferings for us. All that he's earned for us. Thank you that you're going to make all things new, including our very hearts, our very desires, our very thoughts, our minds. You'll make new. You'll make our bodies new. And you'll make this world new. Thank you for that. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.